This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, How the Blackberry Got Squashed edition. It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2023, on today's show. Blackberry is a feature film that tells the story of the device that once dominated the market in smartphones, obviously, pre-iPhone. It stars Jay Baruchel and Matt Johnson. Johnson co-wrote and directed the picture, too. And then Bupkis has been described as a, quote, heightened, fictionalized version of Pete Davidson's life. Yum. The sitcom is on Peacock. It stars Bobby Cannavale and Joe Pesci and Edie Falco, in addition to Pete Davidson himself. And finally, was Shakespeare a woman? So asks a new book. Isaac Butler is very skeptical. Slate's own Isaac Butler, I should say. He will join us to discuss. But first, joining me is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Hey, hey. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic. Forcelate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. All right, let's make a podcast. The phone computer in your pocket is a recent invention. And the first one, kids, was not the iPhone. The BlackBerry dominated the market for about a decade, at least in the early aughts, during which the tiny Canadian company behind it, Research in Motion, went from a fly-by-night operation staffed by gearheads and nerds to a $47 billion or so company with 85 million users. That arc from Innocent Pirates to Corporate Overlords to dot, 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 beyond is told in the new movie, Blackberry. It stars Jay Baruchel and Matt Johnson as the head nerds and Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as the nasty corporate suit brought in to uh, herd the cats. Uh, Matt Johnson, I should say, also co-wrote and directed the movie. In the clip, you'll hear the voices of Baruchel and Howerton as the two co-CEOs of BlackBerry. At this point, things are going pretty badly for the company. They're experiencing outages and very bad press, and the two of them are arguing over the phone. Let's uh, let's listen. Mike? Hi. There are three reasons why people buy our phones. Do you know what they are? We're email. They fucking work! Yeah, okay. It's not us, Jim. It's the carrier. Verizon is doing something weird. Okay. Well, I'm about to do something weird if you don't fix this. Now! Um... The deal I, was, I get the engineers, I, you shrink the data! Are you, are you are you selling more phones? What the hell do you think I've been doing over here, Mike? We're in the middle of a hostile fucking takeover! Do I need to have somebody babysit you, dork? Okay, okay. So that's... Okay. Uh, yeah, the entire system is crashing. He's selling more phones. God damn it! Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I, you know, maybe just uh, hold off selling more. Phones. I'm not. Fuck, yeah. 
<laughs> that last sound you hear is a payphone circa 2008 being slammed repeatedly into the into the booth. I know, and such a pointed and wonderful anachronism. I mean, the iPhone comes along and kills everything, right? But every every competitor. But you know, Dana. You know, we just did air the sort of product biopic for the Air Jordan sneaker and kind of a, you know, two-hour infomercial for Nike. Many people decried it as a kind of weird celebratory, you know, pro-capitalist or quasi-pro-capitalist film. This one's about a product. You could sort of group it superficially with air, but kind of not really. It's about a failure, not a success. What would you make of it? Yeah, I didn't see air. I was out the week that y'all did that. And when we talked about doing BlackBerry, I thought, oh, but is that too close to that Nike movie you just talked about? But apparently in tone, they're completely, completely different. I guess they do have in common that they're both sort of the biopic of a product, right? Um, But this one seems like it has a darker... And maybe funnier take. I don't know if Air is intended as a comedy, but there is nothing particularly respectful. I, I saw Air, in this and tone. I don't know if it was intended as a comedy. <laughs> but if someone, can it tell is a me. funny, it is a funny morally bankrupt movie. Air is a comedy. It's worth its comedy. It's good. <laughs> it's a yeah, matter of debate. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I guess I would just say that this movie. Although narrow in its scope, I wish that this movie had taken on a little bit more how the culture around the BlackBerry changed. And, you know, it had some more drama that took place outside of the boardrooms and the and the grubby, um, you know, little techie caves where, where the product was invented and marketed. But what it does within those spaces, I think, is is, is pretty impressive. Um, and I, I wound up really caring about these two main characters, the Jay Baruchel and, and Matt Johnson characters, and their story, which is a little bit analogous maybe to the Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak story, right? Mm. That there's mm-hmm. the guy who's more polished, who becomes the face of the company. Uh, that's Jay Baruchel's character. And then Matt Johnson, co-writer, director, and co-star, is, is the... The nerd behind the scenes, the one who gives the company its kind of morale and its underground spirit, but who sort of gets left behind as the as the company takes off. We also haven't mentioned Glenn Howerton, who plays the guy you hear in that clip slamming the phone into the booth, uh, who is the what would you call him? He's sort of the um, corporate vulture who, who swoops in demands to become co-CEO of the company and takes them to the next level financially. Yeah, he's terrific in this movie. Uh, Julia, what uh, what did you make of it? I really enjoyed it. I also love that the American product movie is a, you know, buoyant story of triumph that um, conveniently ignores all the moral complexities of its narrative. And the Canadian product movie is a ambivalent story of failure with a lot of references to Canadian locations, it seemed apropos. But I really enjoyed a lot about this movie, but found it inconsistent in its own moral compass. Like I felt like the needle of its interest in politics was wavering a little bit. And I want to explain why and have you help me interpret that. Because when you said the, the partnership between the two people in the film, I expected you to say between Baruchel's character and Jim Balsillie, this kind of corporate shark and snake who does not have a moral compass but is kind of desperate for his next career move an ambitious striver who is a partner to them in in getting the phone into the hands of folks around the world and in a way the film is just as interested in that partnership and the parts of the film that seem strongest to me are, are the ones that show how both are necessary, the genius and the salesmanship, the creativity and the ruthlessness. Um, It would be a much less interesting movie, I think, if he were just 
portrayed as like a useless snake who ruined everything. There would have been no Blackberry craze without this guy. The film seems pretty clear in showing us. And then there's a final third of the movie where we see the collapse. And when the collapse happens, Jay Baruchel's character begins to act very differently, seems to have lost his own moral compass, seems a bit crazed, and seems a little bit unrelated to the character we've met in the previous eras. Um, And I don't think the film gives us enough depth to help us understand how he got there exactly. I don't know. The movie seemed confused about what point it was making to me. Am I? Does that resonate for you guys? I thought, so first of all, I want to say I loved the movie, and, and I thought it was the perfect antidote to air. Um, second of all, I think there's just a lovely irony that I think people go in knowing when they see this film, but it hits them at the end when everybody in the movie theater simultaneously pulls out their iPhone to see what they've missed in the two hours they sat in the dark, you know, emails and texts and whatever else. I mean, it's a, it's a movie in a weird sort of negative and implied way about the total universality of the iPhone. And You go in knowing the inevitability, right? Like, there's sort of Darwin's been moralized a lot as a kind of aid to capitalist (laughs) ideology in some sense. Like, survival of the fittest is always interpreted in this nonsensical way, right? As if it's really about like the best guy prevailing because he's the toughest, most ruthless, and the alpha predator or whatever, which isn't really Darwin. Darwin really is the meteor hits the earth out of the blue, and all the dinosaurs, these gigantic alphas, suddenly disappear at the snap of a finger. And so you have, I think, Julia, you're absolutely right on. I loved Glenn Howerton's performance, and I actually couldn't believe that I came to very quickly to kind of admire that character who's absolutely the stereotype of everything I hate about sort of American style business machismo. And you're right. If he didn't go in there, they never would have taken step one. So I see the arc of the movie in sort of three parts. There's the Lennon and McCartney like creative partnership, which is just, you know, delicious beyond delicious, like two young idealistic guys uh, you know, banging out tunes on mom's piano, you know, on an old upright. And then you have this sort of second third of it, which is the necessity to become a real business, which requires this ruthlessness that they themselves do not possess. So that friendship gets sacrificed to this other expedient relationship with the type A asshole who comes in and makes the trains run on time. And then the final thing, which is like for all of that macho posturing, right? For all of the money, for all of the success, all it takes is the meteor hitting the earth and all of one kind of alpha dies in an instant. And it's the arrival of the iPhone. It's just so powerfully depicted, right? Like the egos and balance sheets could get that swollen and then in a swoop, it's just all obsolete. It's landfill. I think I agree with Julia now that I heard her formulate it, though, that it could have used an extra penultimate chapter. You know, that there's it, it, it has a nice propulsiveness. It's a short movie and it moves quickly, but it moves so quickly through some of that, that last third you were talking about that I think I agree that the dramatic stakes get a bit unclear. And you also don't know, you have to go in with your own sense of, how smartphones changed culture because the movie doesn't really do much about that at all. This is not the social network, right? I mean, you could argue that the social network is floating too many big ideas and they're the wrong big ideas, but it is kind of trafficking in 
bigger social questions, I think, than than this movie, which is a really tightly focused kind of, um, you know, corporate drama <laughs> with a little bit of a comic edge, too. Yeah. I mean, how how it is that Jay Baruchel's character not only lost his moral compass, but also lost the smarts that made him able to build the phone in the first place. Like he, it's very poignant. Like he doesn't get the iPhone. He thinks it's ridiculous. And he kind of gets rigidly attached to the idea that people want their keyboards and their clicks. And he can't see that he's being swept aside and it's, it's moving, but it, you don't quite understand how the sort of smart and underneath it all actually practical enough to see the value that that the Jim Balsillie character brings to the company um, has become so rigid and impractical and, and unvisionary. The other thing I think we have to note is that Mike Lazaridis, the, the Jay Baruchel character, is obsessed with the idea of kind of perfection in manufacturing. And the film sets up as this villain and bogeyman, the idea of manufacturing in China, which, you know, the, we now have talked about these two movies that are thinking about outsourcing and or not thinking about outsourcing in different ways. But the way that this film presents that question is about the quality of manufacture. And it felt kind of racially gross to me, like the notion of like, oh, when the Chinese make something, it's terrible and it has buzzing hisses and uh, like... It, it raises questions about the competency of outsourced manufacture, which felt like the the movie kind of wants you to get excited about the idea that things manufactured in China are poorly made, which is like not a thing I want to cheer along with. Like the, the questions raised by outsourcing as a mode of manufacture for North American corporations aren't about the competency of the manufacturer for me. I mean, and also, by the way, has the iPhone never not been made in China? And there are beautifully crafted devices. I mean, it doesn't hold up. I, I thought the movie endorsed his view, viewpoint, not just depicted it, and was xenophobic in that regard. Well, despite my quibbles, I really would encourage people to see it. It's really interesting in and of itself. It's a really interesting story. It actually makes me want to go back and read the book it's based on about the failure of BlackBerry. And it's a really good compliment to air if you saw that, whether you enjoyed it or not. I also think both of them together, uh, it occurred to me seeing them, part of what's going on here is like the collaborative office is now like a romantic dreamland, you know, <laughs> in, in an era of remote work, like watching people in cubicles chit chat, whatever era of nostalgic music is playing it's like it might as well be Lawrence of Arabia walking through the <laughs> desert. You're like, whoa! It's whoa, true. Movie night. Glory of the movie past. night. That's just it. that's that's old times. Oh, now. whatever yeah. happened to the water cooler? Uh, like, I think maybe this is one of the underlying things behind all the office dramas we're seeing. It's like nostalgia for the office. So, uh, I anyway. Go uh, check it out. It has it has much to recommend it, despite its flaws. Here, here, I totally agree. I really enjoyed this movie. It's BlackBerry. As of now, you can't stream it. It was fun to see it in a movie theater, as always. Uh, and if you do see it, uh, shoot us an email. Tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast. We typically discuss business. Dana, what do you uh, what do you have? Steve, our only item of business is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. We have a listener question this week. A listener named Allison wrote in after hearing about Steve's recent move back to Brooklyn from upstate where he's lived for what, Steve, about? Man, it could be 13, 14 yeah, years. Since yeah, since your kids were little. Oh, yeah. And Steve, as we've talked about recently now, is here in Brooklyn. We record together in the studio every week, which is really nice. This listener, Allison, was curious about the move. She wanted to hear about what inspired his move and more broadly to hear each of us talk about different phases of life and how they lead to different geographical choices. I think everybody who's been through a few moves has a lot to say about that. And we certainly do. Mm-hmm. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for signing up, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which other shows have as well, and you get unlimited access to all of the wonderful writing on slate.com. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you are supporting our work and you're supporting the work of all our wonderful colleagues. That is what keeps Slate afloat. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right, Pete Davidson, he of Saturday Night Live and world historical showbiz Lothario, or so I'm told, now has a kind of biopic sitcom, a fictionalized version of his own life, a la Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's himself-ish in it, living at home with his mom, a widow. In the show, as in real life, Davidson's father was a firefighter who died on 9-11. And he's learning as a grown-up to live with that loss while also fighting to not be seen, as he himself says, as a joke. Edie Falco plays his mom, Joe Pesci's his grandfather, and Bobby Cannavale as his uncle, and of course, Davidson as himself-ish. In the clip, you're going to hear Pete and his grandfather, played by Pesci, catching up over lunch. Let's listen. So what's been going on? What'd you do, get another tattoo, Peter? No, I'm I'm burning them off now. Yeah. All of them? It's too bad. I was... Thought you were gonna put some on your face if you could get balls over here and the cock coming down your nose right into your mouth. <laughs> Funny. No, no, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just think if I, if I burn them off, you know, maybe people will take me more seriously. It ain't the tattoos, Peter. Well, I gotta change it up. You know, I gotta change the way people see me. People think I'm like a joke for some reason. They see you as a joke because you are a joke and you act like a fucking joke. You run around like a kid and you're not a kid anymore. You're a man. Yeah, but I'm doing good career-wise. I mean, you know, Hypebeast called me a voice of a generation. I, I don't think that was a compliment. You're unhappy because all you do is try to make yourself happy. You should try to make somebody else happy once in a while. Do something for somebody. Put a smile on their face. All right, Julia, I have no memory of ever talking about Pete Davidson on this show, um, but uh, here we are. What, uh, what do you make of uh, Bubkiss? This show works for me. I'm very curious what you guys thought of it. It's a little shaggy. I'm not sure it's a transformative, coherent masterpiece, but the main strength of it to me is that it 
uses the other characters in Pete Davidson's family to make a comedic portrait of like mental health through the grief of life and not just the grief of losing your father young, but the grief of, I don't know, aging and not even dashed hopes, just life proceeding and only being one of the versions of life that you thought you might have. Um, Bobby Cannavale in particular is amazing. There's a, the, an episode that centers on Davidson's relationship with this uncle in the weeks after his father's death on 9-11 and then in the present that I found really moving. And maybe that's just because Bobby Cannavale elevates everything he's ever in. Um, you know, the the show opens with like a masturbation gag that's pretty stupid. There's definitely like goofiness in it that doesn't always land, but there's like an underlying emotional sincerity to it. The, the show has a lot in common with Curb and that it's playing with the persona of a comedian. But then tonally, it actually couldn't be more different than mm-hmm. Curb because yeah. it is like deeply sincere about the grief of being human and and yearning to to love and enjoy life. And yet it's full of like cum jokes. So I don't know. It was a strange brew, but I enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Dana? I mean, it's beyond shaggy. It's really sort of almost jagged, I think, in its ups and downs, this show. (laughs) And there were moments when I really definitively thought it had lost me and I had everything I wanted to say about it. And then I thought, well, I'll just watch one more episode. It does, to its credit, have short little episodes that move Mm -hmm. quickly, right? They feel a little bit like a bundle of sketches. Some of the sketches are more effective than others. But I ended up watching the entire thing. I watched all eight episodes of the show because I was just very curious where the arc was going to go. And it did go to some unexpected places by the end. It is definitely not coherent. Julia is right about that. I think there's a very strong um, quality dip when the scenes with the stoner entourage come in. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of two social groups that he hangs out with, the Pete Davidson as Pete Davidson character, his family, and those scenes are almost all uniformly excellent. Edie Mm -hmm. Falco is his mother, Brad Garrett as his uncle, um, Joe Pesci, of course, is his granddad. Those feel really rooted and grounded, and um, I think based in things on Davidson's real life is maybe why. The stoner entourage... All those characters felt totally undifferentiated to me all the way up to episode number eight. I still didn't know their names or what their history was with Pete Davidson. And there was a strange desire for the viewer at once to think of them as these leeches who he had to get rid of, as all his relatives are advising him to do because they just hang on for his fame and money. And sort of endearing scenes where they're broing down and shooting the shit together and they're kind of having fun. So I honestly don't know whether the show even knows whether those friends are good for him or not. And that seems like an important thing to establish in a show that's all about recovery and healing. Um, And also those those scenes are just not as interesting, right? I mean, I don't want to see him hang out with a bunch of undifferentiated stoner dudes whose names I don't know. So I've if I had been giving notes on this as a pilot, you know, if I was going to green light it or not, I would basically say either lose those scenes or develop those characters. So, yeah, to me, I, my enjoyment meter of the show would be very jig-jag, up-and-down kind of graph. But the highs are pretty high, and some of the places where the show gets really raunchy are just silly and, and sophomoric, and some of them are really freaking funny. <laughs> like, this show really goes there in terms of, you know, being um, pretty openly filthy <laughs> from episode one. <laughs> I mean, 
it's watching the first two episodes is such a like whiplash, you know. I mean, I went in thinking my prejudices against Pete Davidson as a as a performer are just they're so they have to be so subjective and biased. Like it can't be that he's that. But what do you what do you think about him as a performer? Yeah, I thought you didn't really know. I, I, I find I him, like him as a performer. I find him. Okay, first of all, you can't pin this on me. The whole show is about how people find him unfunny and annoying, right? Like, like the show acknowledges and bakes into its understanding of itself that he is fighting that. Oh, I don't actually think that's what those... I think that he thinks that the internet thinks he's like a doofus in spite of his comedic talent. I don't actually think the show goes as far as thinking he's unfunny. And I don't think that's the knock on him. I think it's like, oh, yeah, funny, funny on SNL, but kind of a fuck up and his fuck ups have... Right, far outshadowed whatever his talent is. Like that to me is the rep more than like unfunny. Interesting, like he's pretty funny. Well, okay, so stipulated, I don't find him funny, and you guys do. But the um... I, wait, I didn't say I found him funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually find him charming as an actor in this show. I, I haven't watched enough SNL to say much about his performance right. there. Right. But my prior knowledge of him mainly came from the Judd Apatow movie, very similar in setting to this one called The King of Staten Island, uh, that's loosely based on his life, but in which he is not famous and does not really aspire to be famous, um, but which has some of the same material and some of the same sense of place of Staten Island, which which is a nice part of the show. So this is where I was going to go. Episode one, I found sophomoric and it confirmed my sense of this guy as just a lightweight, annoying, you know, sophomoric lightweight. Episode two is really beautifully done, realized. Is there something really careful about depicting this catastrophic loss at the center of his and all of their lives, basically, in this show. And you get Bobby Cannavale in episode two. I don't even know if we meet him in episode one. And Cannavale is so transcendently good as this would-be surrogate father who's just caught up in dirty shit, and, but, but he's so cool through a nine or whatever it is, 10-year-old boy's eyes and so magnetic, and you see him through those kids' eyes. You want him to be a decent enough father figure. Um, it's a powerful performance, and it's beautifully written and and and, and carried off. Um, other things I like about the show: uh, Edie Falco and Pesci are both very good in it. Dana, you nailed it. Like the the context of the family and that household is wonderful. As soon as you get the stoner posse, the show, which to me just drags. It's in, in, underwritten and funny but um i love that staten island's a character in this right it's like the forgotten borough i mean it's it's not forgotten and but it just is it's like the red state borough of new york city you know it's by reputation at least somewhat unchanging place that uh is insular and it's not a world that i think overlaps with you know the general consciousness of hollywood or showbiz very much and this just it takes you into this suburban ethnic suburban insular world like really into the heart of it in this heartfelt and i thought really true way um it didn't make me laugh hard enough it didn't make me care deeply enough though i have to say and i petered out after the fourth episode yeah, I mean, I think my note for the first few episodes, the ones that you watched probably, uh, was something like, the show vastly overestimates how much I care about Pete Davidson. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't go in with strong feelings right. one way or another. To me, he mainly has been a figure from the tabloids who dates tons of famous women and is kind of a meme. Uh, 
And so the fact that I was able to get drawn into his universe at all and that that family had enough sense of texture and substance to keep me going is is basically why I kept going. And I think, again, that I just I appreciate that although there's some drag in the in the posse scenes, this gets the job done quickly. <laughs> you know, this show doesn't make you sit around for 10 hours to get its story told. And uh, yeah, I thought it was worth finishing. I mean, I think I think the sincerity was what drew me into it and kept me watching it. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched far more episodes than I thought I would watch when I sat down and kept clicking play, play, play. Um, it's interesting. Like wh- whenever comedians act, they are playing against their persona. And I think the thing that I find poignant about Davidson as a tabloid figure is that he still seems to be trying to figure out his own persona. There's a confidence to him, but also a lostness to him. And performing and playing against that lostness is interesting. I don't know. feels braver, feels stranger than, you know, crusty old Larry David making jokes about the Riviera Golf Club. You know, like it, it, there's a, there's a vulnerability and like a lack of carapace to him where I think sometimes when you see the comedian playing the comedian in the world of the comedian, you know, like the layers of irony and distance, they feel like they're about the comedian's self-protection, which comedy often is. Um, And like the rawness and sort of unformedness of Davidson feels like part of his thing. I don't know. If you're Davidson curious at all, I think it's... And or if you want to revel in the work of anyone who's ever played an Italian-American in in, in Hollywood ever, <laughs> yeah. doing really good stuff, They're give, in it, give yeah. it a whirl. Um, you've convinced me. And I will say two things. One is that this show does enable you to see the face of the boy who lost his father in 9-11 in one of the towers in the real Pete Davidson's face, which actually is very powerful. And secondly, I was totally wrong about Adam Sandler. Like you could take everything I just said about Pete Davidson and I said it 20 years ago, whenever it was about Adam Sandler. And Sandler turned into a really accomplished dramatic, really interesting and accomplished dramatic actor in middle age. So I stand corrected the show's bupkis. It's on Peacock. Check it out, and uh, if you have any sort of Pete Davidson stands in our audience or or anti anti Pete's, uh, shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, well, we're joined by Isaac Butler, a friend of the program, a Slate veteran and author of the book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Isaac, I just learned something about that book literally 30 seconds ago. Oh, yeah? You fucking won the National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction, you fucking asshole. Like, I know, wh- it's crazy. <laughs> that was, that literally, that word, what, uh, was what I uh, yelled at the top of my lungs when they said my name <laughs> at the ceremony. I was completely shocked. 
I thought I knew which book was going to win and that it wasn't going to be mine. Uh, it's just, it's just been awesome. It's great. Uh, there's, there's just no two ways around it. It's, it's crazy. Um, uh, it doesn't still doesn't feel real. And, um, uh, I'm incredibly flattered as it's an award as a reader or buyer of books that I take super seriously. So it's, it's great to be in the company of the past winners and the nominees. Uh, all right. Well, we are going to have to proceed to the subject of this segment, which is uh, the assertion that Shakespeare didn't write the plays and that a woman did. In your piece about that theory, you talk about how, you know, there are these obvious gaps in the biographical record. You know, what we know about Shakespeare's life comes to us in these very disparate bits and pieces. They're frustratingly hard to knit together into anything like a cohesive, much less comprehensive narrative at all. It creates two cottage industries, as you say, a biographical complex, the churning out of biographies of one kind or another, attempting to fill in those gaps, but being relatively scholarly about it in some instances, at least. And then there's a sort of truther subculture, um, which we all become familiar with, right, pretty early on, that there's a you know theory that someone else, the authorship question, who actually, who really wrote the plays... Um, I want to get to why there is that incredulity and why the question seems, you know, unkillable. But there's a current theory put forward by a woman named Elizabeth Winkler in her book, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. You, Isaac, are unconvinced. Tell us why. Well, first of all, I should say that that Winkler at least adopts the rhetorical pose that she's just asking questions and suggesting possibilities as opposed to saying this is what she really believes. I don't know that I myself believe that. You can go on YouTube and see her 2018 appearance at the Shakespeare Authorship Trust, which is before she ever wrote on this subject, in which she seems pretty convinced that it was a woman, that it was either mm. Amelia Bassano or Mary Sidney both of whom are important and fascinating figures in their own right. You don't actually have to link them to Shakespeare to be interested in them. They're they're really, really fascinating figures who knit together a bunch of different things going on at that time. The problem is, is that we actually have their writing and it's nothing like Shakespeare's, <laughs> you know, like that, that, that's one of the really basic problems is that there's nothing connecting either of them seriously to Shakespeare. I mean, he probably knew Mary Sidney. The folio is dedicated to her sons, and he likely consulted a translation of a play of hers about Mark Antony when he was doing Antony and Cleopatra. But um, and there's this theory that Amelia Bassano is the dark lady of the sonnets. And, you know, his character is named Amelius and a character named Bassanius in Titus Andronicus. And there's a character named Amelia in Othello and stuff like that. But, you know, the best you can do is say this evidence suggests he maybe knew them. There's just nothing that links either of them to the plays. Certainly not their writing, which does not read like his at all. Yeah, Isaac, I mean, I think when when you get down to it, the nitty gritty of why all of these truth or controversies about Shakespeare don't make any sense, and I think you get into this late in your piece, is that the number of people who would have had to be in on it and keep the secret at the time and pretend <laughs> that the guy born in Stratford-upon-Avon was the actual author of the plays would be absurd. Like, there's just no, there's no alternate story that makes any sense unless you really believe that all of history is this vast, fevered conspiracy to hide from us the true identity of the author of Shakespeare's plays. I mean, reading this, I, I felt like I was flashing back on various conversations, times that this has come up in conversation between you and me, just the silliness of this <laughs> yeah. controversy. And even though this is not 
not written in a comical tone. You know, you really are just sort of logically taking apart the woman's argument. I was laughing throughout because I could just feel your impatience with, you know, the, the persistence of this question. And it was almost as if you struggled within yourself as to re- even bother to address this book. And you finally just got so disgusted that you sat down and started typing this piece. And uh, I think that's why it reads to me as a, as a fevered screed, even though it is, in fact, quite a recent argument. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, um, I was assigned reviewing this book by our friend and colleague, Dan Kois. And um, then I read it. And, you know, you try to go into these things open-mindedly. Obviously, I don't take the Shakespeare truth or position seriously. I don't think it deserves being taken seriously. But you want to at least, like, read the book and, and and go into it. And I just found it you know, really ridiculous in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, there's stuff that feels misrepresented to me. There's, um, sources from the time that are paraphrased in ways that's really tendentious. You know, it gets into Dan Brown territory, as as I say in the piece, really, really fast. And it is sort of overly generous to those who doubt Shakespeare was the author and, uh, you know, gives the third degree to anyone who thinks he was, which is just, it's just ridiculous. It's sort of like that John Ronson book, them if John Ronson believed that aliens assassinated JFK. It's just like, yeah. So I was very, very frustrated by it. Uh, And I wasn't sure how to go about writing this piece until I sort of remembered this piece of advice I got in graduate school from a a mentor, which is that, uh, which I talk about a lot on working, which is, you know, a problem for your text should become a problem in your text. So in this case, the problem was, I don't know how to address this in a way that won't actually Um, inadvertently further the cause of trutherism. And then I decided to actually make that the subject of the review. And so the review kind of becomes about trutherism, which is a bigger problem than this book. This book's going to come and go. The bigger problem is the rhetoric uh, surrounding trutherism and the way it works uh, in our society and uses the principles of liberal inquiry against itself in this really corrosive way that we see over and over and over again in far more significant and important debates like vaccines or whether Obama's a citizen or climate change is real or anything like that. Um, Shakespeare truthers get really, really angry when you compare them to these folks. And I'm not saying that their, their belief that the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare is identical. I'm saying the rhetoric and the modes of argument are identical. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I really appreciated about your review is, you know, I think the last time I thought seriously about this quote-unquote question about Shakespeare's authorship was maybe when that anonymous movie was made and the ridiculousness of it seemed like a a harmless hobby. Like, oh, there's a bunch of weirdos who choose to spend their time thinking about this. Like, great. There's also people who, like, collect Delft tiles. Like, whatever, fine, have your hobby. It It didn't seem pernicious. It seemed silly. And I think looking at this persistent thread again in 2023 when our basic ability to like agree on collective truths and sense feels much more under threat. It feels like an object lesson in that tendency to to deny reality <laughs> and to float, yeah, to, to, to sort of lance things that are likely true because there's the preponderance of evidence suggesting they are true with with weird questions and firebombs that that don't actually add up to anything and it 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 yeah made me more intrigued by and upset by this 
tendency as opposed to thinking of it as a harmless hobby. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. And second, it absolutely mirrors my own evolution on this stuff. You know, like I used to just be like, this is funny. I mean, it's a little annoying, but it's mostly funny. Like these people are just silly, you know, um, even some of them are incredibly accomplished people in, in their fields, like Mark Rylance, who's one of the foremost interpreters of Shakespeare on the stage, uh, Supreme court justice, John Paul Stevens. Wait, Mark Rylance is a truther. I will say of all the truthers in the book, he is the one who comes across the most sympathetically because his case is essentially like in order to act this stuff, it makes sense for me if I think about it as written by someone else. Basically, so it'd be like, so I think it's the Earl of Oxford when I need to do this. And I um, think of it as Amelia Bassano when I need to do this. So it's a series of windows is how he phrases it. Uh, his actual participation in the kind of public sphere, I think, is far more corrosive than that. But at least his like point of view is, you know, he's like a somewhat odd artsy guy. And it's, you know, it, it seems more fanciful with him than it does with the others. But yeah, you know. It, it used to be kind of like, this is funny. Like anonymous is a ridiculous movie. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, right. now, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know about y'all, but in the early days of the pandemic, when I really wanted to feel even shittier than I already felt, I would like look up whatever Alex Berenson was saying on hmm. Twitter or whatever. And, you know, you just become inundated with this mode of arguing, uh, and, and you just realize eventually how corrosive it, it right. really is to the public sphere. Right. And so, I just felt like taking this book, which is like not that important and kind of annoying. That's really what the Shakespeare debate is. It's not that important. It's really annoying, but you can use it as a way of illustrating all of these other debates that are far more important. Right. So let's step back a second, right? The, it's the, so the impulse comes from someplace, I think, um, honest and somewhat relatable, which is you have this unrivaled in the English language canon of works that are sort of they they occupy they they just occupy a space under themselves for their breadth of their imaginative universe their depth of understanding of the human soul their beauty of language their poetry their humor their pathos the tragedy i mean the sheer array of characters that that one person whoever it was wrote them is astounding so the curiosity or the more than curiosity even kind of keening need to know who could have done that and then one turns to the person as we have him, a Glover son, I guess, suppose sort of middle class, probably not poorly educated, but not especially well educated, uh, a businessman, an actor, uh, an entrepreneur by our use of the anachronistic use of the term. I mean, kind of a remarkable polymath in one sense, a perfectly ordinary human being in the other. And you try to square it all and you just want more information, more biography, like how? But you say something quite I think quite beautifully quoting Marjorie Garber, the Shakespeare scholar at the end of your piece, which is that at the end of the day, perhaps while honoring that hunger for more knowledge about his biography, one should ignore it. That at the end of the day, what we have are the plays. The Shakespeare, the name is made full and pregnant with meaning for us because of the plays, right? Not because of whoever that person was. Um, and turn instead to them and accept that, that their magnificence is the origin of this curiosity. Yeah, you know, Shakespeare loved a dialectic. He loved setting opposite ideas against each other. And so, you know, I feel similarly about this in that the yearning to know more about the person 
I think is a, is a beautiful thing. I think it motivates a lot of scholarship into Shakespeare's time in particular and to what his contexts were. You know, it's almost like the he's the chalk outline and we've got to fill in the rest of the world around it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, that I think is is beautiful and it motivates great scholarship and is incredible, that yearning for him. I share that yearning. I think, I think anyone who loves his work, other than Marjorie Garber, who pointedly ignores that yearning, <laughs> mm-hmm. does. But the other side of it is that I actually think, and this is something Winkler said, says in her book that I agree with the the biographical void is part of what makes the plays brilliant to us that we they can't be I mean we all know that biography is a fallacy in arguing meaning of literary works but still you can't resort to that successfully while trying to come up with a definitive reading of Shakespeare. There isn't a definitive reading of those plays because he's always engaging in these dialectics. There's lots of different ideas, lots of different things you can chew on because we don't know who he was. Yeah, And so those two things actually work together for me. It's the yearning and the absence create or are part of the creation of our view of his genius. Yeah, Isaac, something I I think I've seen you tweet about this maybe when you were reading the book and starting to cook up your ideas for this piece uh, was that you also find that this very pious way of talking about Shakespeare that sort of how could he possibly know all these things if he wasn't, you know, Edward de Vere or something is also somewhat idealized because he gets plenty of facts wrong and is certainly working from the point of view of somebody who understands the world through the experiences he's had. For example, you mentioned him saying that the country of Bohemia has a coastline in Shakespeare's world, right? Like he is operating on the information of that one limited man with a limited biography would have obtained. Yeah, totally. I mean, and and trying to see those limitations. I mean, there's a weird way in which both the Shakespeare biographical complex and the Shakespeare truthers have to kind of hyperbolically describe what Shakespeare is doing, when in fact what he already did is impressive enough. All right. Well, Isaac, thanks for coming on. The piece is up on Slate. It's called To Be or Not to Be Shakespeare. Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Isaac Butler, uh, come back soon. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Maybe you remember, Steve, that a few weeks ago, maybe it was a couple months ago now, I endorsed a uh, a YouTube channel of a person, unknown person named Nobody. That's the name of his channel who did, does sort of classical music compilations. So along those same lines, it's getting warmer outside and it feels more like pop music weather. And sometimes I try to make myself get out of my rut of only listening to lyric-free music and and actually listen to some fun pop songs. Pretty soon we'll have Summer Strut to infuse us with new pop. But for right now, I was looking for a good pop playlist maker on YouTube because I feel like when you're craving that DJ feeling, you know, somebody who's curating the music for you and telling you exactly what it is and not serving it up algorithmically, it just feels more special. So I found a YouTuber um, who I also know slightly just through through social media because he's a music critic who's out on the scene. His name is Matthew Perpetua. He, for a long time, was the music editor at BuzzFeed. I'm not sure if that's still his job, especially with all the changes at BuzzFeed lately. Um, but he definitely has a music blog called Flux Blog, where he makes collections of music. And I just discovered that he has this great YouTube channel under his name, Matthew Perpetua, spelled like perpetual without the L in which he just comes up with vibes and makes playlists around those vibes. So, for example, the one that I discovered the channel through is called This Was Summer 1980. He made it sometime in the last couple weeks. And it's just all the pop hits of the summer before I started high school, which takes me back to so many often painful and pimply memories. 
but it's just beautifully curated. And like the Nobody uh, list maker on on YouTube, Matthew Perpetua really delivers a full playlist. He tells you what the what album it's from. You know, he identifies the song and the year. You really kind of feel like you're getting a little mini education. Some of his other vibe-based playlists include the late 90s Sophisticate. This was summer 1976. I'll definitely check that one out. What was Britpop? Uh, alt-crunchy, neo-hippie, jam band, and folky vibes. So I think he's just somebody who has a vast knowledge of pop music and is curating it in these fun little playlists. If you feel like going down that lane of discovery, go to Matthew Perpetua's YouTube channel. That sounds amazing. Um, Julia, what do you have? First of all, I have to say, big Matthew Perpetua fan. I've been reading him since back when music blogs were like the primary way of... of, um, Yeah, he's an OG blogger for sure. For sure. And those playlists are all available as Spotify playlists, too. So you can, if you follow, the way I follow him is I think I follow him on Twitter where he'll announce his playlists and then you can click a Spotify link into them if you, like me, just find the overall aesthetic of YouTube oppressive and irritating. You you can follow his work without ever getting to YouTube. Yeah, I think I, calling it his, he's that he's a YouTube channeler is, is kind of wrong. He is a multi-channel blogger who I happened to discover on that platform this week. Also having known him mainly as, you know, just a guy with good music taste on Twitter. But uh, I look forward to exploring his taste more deeply on the channel. Cool. Uh, all right. I've got two endorsements this week. One, a good friend of mine just produced a show for Amazon called Amityville, An Origin Story, which is a super beautifully shot, interesting look back at why we keep telling and keep telling and keep telling the Amityville story with tons of really interesting interviews, um, but also just shot and made in a really cool way. So if um, Amityville is a story that you have returned to, you should not miss this show really interesting. Um, My second endorsement is really just an excuse to relate this anecdote about my child, but it was recently Mother's Day, so I'm going to make you all indulge me. But you can find on YouTube, the recently lamented, uh, a video from Paramount Pictures called Mission colon impossible hyphen dead reckoning part one dash the biggest stunt in cinema history parentheses Tom Cruise. And what this is, is a nine minute and 22 second video that shows how Tom Cruise trained to perform and then performed a stunt in the new Mission Impossible movie expected this summer, in which he rides a motorcycle off a cliff and then, I guess, parachutes down to the ground somehow or hang glides. You know, he defies gravity and physics again. Um And so we've watched it with my children now a few times. And it is an amazing portrait of the maniacal obsession of Tom Cruise and his weird physicality. Um, Steve, as a particular Tom Cruise student, I think you must watch this if you have not already. Um, And there's like a moment where he actually does the stunt for the first time. I mean, he truly does ride the motorcycle off the cliff, guys. Like Tom Cruise actually does this. And there's a moment where the director... Christopher McQuarrie is like watching on the monitors and they see that he has not killed himself and that he has not killed Tom Cruise. And like the palpable relief on his face is a a striking moment captured on film. Um, But the other thing I love is just the effectiveness of this marketing. We watch this and then my son said, I think we have to see this movie because this man is just working so hard on it. (laughs) 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 And 
I was like, yep, that's basically the marketing plan for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And I can't wait. So um, I recommend watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 slash The Biggest Stunt in Cinema History, parentheses Tom Cruise. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And when the movie comes out, we have to talk about it. For sure. Oh, dear. All right. Well, um, I know that everyone is just waiting to hear the latest installment uh, in my feist journey. And um, installment number one was my discovery of this YouTube video of her performing at like backstage with doing a song, teaching a song actually to the Kings of Convenience duo backstage in Berlin somewhere. A song is called Red Wing. Um, insanely beautiful. And it's very fun to watch these guys kind of pick it up and start harmonizing with her. And then her new album features it. Finally, she put out the song and the new album is lovely. I endorse that. That's two feist endorsements. Well, here's a third, which is I saw her live. I took my two daughters to go see her at Brooklyn Steel uh, last Saturday, a few nights ago. And um, she's such a curious and affecting performer. And she decided to do something which I think is very hard to pull off, which is a rock show as deconstruction of rock show. And it played very consciously and self-consciously with the you know, relationship between audience and performer. It tried to kind of upend that in interesting ways. It it integrated video. And there were also these kind of slights of hand that felt manipulative, but it left you seriously, in addition to performing some of her songs, I mean, up songs beautifully, right? And opening with an acoustic set that was heartbreaking, very, very affecting. But in addition to that, she left you really asking why do I want a lack of artifice from this kind of music? And why, when something that I thought was spontaneous turns out to be artifice, is that sort of undermining and disappointing? And so she did bump it up to the next meta level without undermining the power of the of the music. And it reminded me of something an acquaintance of mine said 20, 25 years ago, he wrote a very, very long profile at about, about a, for the New Yorker about a very, very famous musician. And he said, none of your illusions will survive the experience of going on tour with a um, performer that you regard as the paragon of kind of spontaneity in the moment performed with spontaneity. You see the same things night after night after night after night. And what makes them a genius is their ability to make you think it is spontaneous and utterly authentic because you are only going, unless you're a deadhead of some sort, you're only going that night and you have to feel like something unique happened that night. And he does it every night. And I can tell you he is feeling nothing on that stage. <laughs> I mean, or very close to nothing on that stage. And it, and I just thought she was confessing that in a weird way in this performance that at first seemed to undermine the power of this very sincere, and this new album is achingly sincere, it's sort of classic singer-songwriter. At the same time, by doing it, it was a form of confession, and it made the evening oddly resonant and powerful, more than just a collection of songs performed really beautifully. So if you have a chance to see her on this tour, I actually think this tour is, is interestingly conceived and worth checking out. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. <laughs>